This evening, we've just heard some of the most fantastic promises that are spoken in all of Scripture of what God reveals His plans were during the times of the Old Testament. And we, in our own day, live in the light of the fulfillment of these things, and yet we're also waiting for an installment of that fulfillment as well. And so we come in a sense of joyous celebration for what God has done, and yet also eager expectation of all the things that He yet has in store for us. As we consider these things tonight, we will be reading from Micah chapter 7. That's where we are working out of for our sermon. But before we begin, let's bow and ask for God's help in this. Father, we do come to you this evening, and we recognize that these are great promises that are before us, things that go beyond what our imaginations can capture and what we can even fully understand. But you have promised to send your Son into the world, that your glory would dwell with your people once again, that their sins would be forgiven and cast into the heart of the seas. Lord, these promises are great, and we need help to believe them. We ask that your Spirit would lead us and guide us into all understanding. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Ernest Hemingway, within one of his short stories, tells of the estrangement between a father and his teenage son. The son, in a fit of rage, leaves home, and his father then turns out after him to find him. He can't locate his son, and so in one last desperate effort, he travels to Madrid, the large city in the region of Spain where they lived. He puts out an ad in the newspaper, and this is what the ad says. Dear Paco, meet me in front of the newspaper office at noon. All is forgiven. I love you, your father. Hemingway then rather wryly comments, the next day at noon in front of the newspaper office, 800 Pacos showed up. And while it's fictional, the story gets at something true, doesn't it? That there is a longing inside of us because we do experience estranged relationships, that we all know what it is to be alienated from other people. We have colleagues, we have lost friends, we have family members, we have siblings. Each of us have people in our lives in which we have suffered estrangement and alienation, a lack of reconciliation with. And we long for that. We long to forgive. We long to be forgiven. We long to pardon. We long to be pardoned. We long for the peace and the reconciliation that can't exist. And if this is true, though, of the human relational world, the spheres that we inhabit, it's only true because there's a deeper longing and a deeper need to be reconciled with another. And that is our deep need to be reconciled with God. That we want an end to the alienation we feel. We want peace with God. We want there to be an end to our guilt and shame. For these things to recede, we want peace. And this evening, the prophet Micah speaks to that longing and that desire. I'll read to you his words once again in verse 18 of chapter 7, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. 
He will cast our, all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. And the prophet celebrates here a future day, a day when God would remove the sins of his people, that he would pardon them and forgive them. A day when God would no longer hold their grievous offenses against them. Throughout the book, we've also learned that the prophet's promise included two main things that were to be carried with this forgiveness. That God would return to Zion and dwell with his people. This was the first and major promise, that he would inhabit the the temple and that he would rest and his people would be secure and the nations of the earth would stream to him to learn wisdom and righteousness and truth. And there's a second promise that accompanied that return of the glory of God to his people and that was the restoration of the Davidic family. That God had promised that one of the sons of the Davidic family would sit upon his throne forever. And son, not only was God going to return to dwell and reign over his people, but also one of David's sons was to be installed upon his throne forever. Perhaps what no one expected in the New Testament was that these two promises, the major bulwark promises of the Old Testament, would collide in one person, Jesus Christ, We heard it in the Gospel of Matthew when the angel says to Joseph, You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That the glory of God was now dwelling. He was walking in the flesh among his people. And that the son of David was that same person. And he was coming to bring the forgiveness of sins. That God was now going to pass over transgressions once again. And when we read all of these wonderful promises, it leads to only one question. It's a question that's not really a question. It's more of an exclamation. And this is where Micah takes us in verse 18 when he exclaims, Who is a God like you? Micah was looking into the future, believing that this God in his steadfast love and faithfulness was one day going to make all of this happen. And he then exclaims, who is a God like you? Who can compare? Who can measure up? What other God would do something like this? And this exclamation, this question, who is a God like you? It's interesting because you find it at several places in the Old Testament. It shows up particularly in Exodus 15 and Psalm 77. And it's an exclamation made in Exodus 15 when God delivers his people through the Red Sea. And then Moses, writing a song in celebration of that great deliverance, says, Who is like you, O Lord? Psalm 77 does the same celebration. After Israel is brought through the Red Sea, who is like the Lord our God? And so this language is always used in the Bible when God intervenes. When God saves and God delivers, when he comes in from the outside and acts in space and time, they would ask the question, who is like you? Who is like the Lord our God? And what Micah is saying to us this evening is that when God once again 
acts to forgive sins, to pardon iniquities, that it will be a mighty act of deliverance. Like his deliverance of Israel through the Red Sea, like his creation of all things out of nothing, that God acting would be this massive deliverance. But friends, one of the most important things for us to see is that our problem, though, is not a foreign political power. What Micah says is that, yes, God must deliver you. There must be this definitive act in which he breaks into the world in order to forgive. But that what we must be delivered from is ourselves. Actually, in these three short verses, Micah uses the entire uh, range of words he can to describe wrongdoing. In the original, in the Hebrew, there are only three words that are used to talk about sin. One of them is the one we translate sin, one is iniquity, and one is transgression. And in piling them up, Micah uses them all right here in proximity inside of these three verses, speaking that God was going to pardon iniquity, that he was going to pass over transgression, that he was going to cast all of our sins into the depth of the sea, that he's identifying for us, using these three words, the comprehensive totality of our problem, that yes, God was going to act, and what God was going to do was remove the very barrier that alienates us from him, that we must be delivered from ourselves, that this was going to be the great act of deliverance that was coming into the world. And what Micah does is he then employs two images in verse 19 to speak of that deliverance. If you follow with me there, he will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. This language is actually borrowed from that chapter in Exodus 15, where first the image that he uses is that God will tread our iniquities underfoot. This is the image of God being a warrior, and that going out to battle as a soldier, he defeats his enemy and then tramples upon his dead corpse. Friends, that's what God says he's going to do to your sin. That he'll defeat it. That he'll be victorious over it. That he'll take your guilt. He will take your shame. And he will put it underfoot. And then he employs the image of you will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. This is the same as the language that's used of Pharaoh's armies that were pursuing the nation of Israel to the shores of the Red Sea. And then God parts the waters and the people pass through. And then Pharaoh's armies attempt to pursue them and the waters crash back upon them. And God delivered and protected his people. And Micah uses that same imagery now to say God will crush the power and the strength of your own sins that he will cast them into the depths of the sea in order to drown them, to nullify their power, to reduce them to nothing. And friends, this is what our Lord Jesus Christ has come into the world to do, that he comes as a warrior and he goes down into death, but then he rises again and he stands over the corpse of sin and he declares himself victorious. By rising again, he is the victorious one. 
And God allows us through faith to share in his victory over sin and death. And that in baptism, our Lord Jesus welcomes us to drown out the old man, the power of our sins that testify against us, that those can be reduced to nothing, that they're taken away, not by anything we do, but by the victory of our Lord Jesus. This is what Micah spoke of, about what God intended to do, that he would send a warrior, one who would fight for us, fight on our behalf, who would destroy our enemy and remove him from us. And friends, this one came into the world for that very purpose. He came into the world to save us from our sins, our great enemy who was of our own making. But why exactly does our God behave in this way? Why is he so intense on reconciling with us, where he does everything on our behalf. And Micah provides the answer in the second half of verse 18. He says, God does not retain his anger forever. He doesn't hold it. He doesn't stay angry. And why? Because he delights in steadfast love. The word here in the original for steadfast love is a rich and full word. It's difficult for us to always translate it. But it's applied in the Bible to relationships, particularly to relationships that are arranged by a covenant. And with reference to God, it speaks of His gracious conduct, what He does to bring a relationship to fulfillment. And it's especially the case We speak of God's steadfast love when he brings a relationship to fulfillment when his partner, the one who is in covenant with him, is weak and full of holes. And so the Bible will speak of the steadfast love of God, and that is what God does in order to bring us into right relationship with him, for him to make the covenant whole and full. And did you catch What these short verses say, why does God act this way? He delights in steadfast love. You see, this God is not like 10% merciful or 15% gracious and the rest wrathful, wrathful. But rather, God is merciful all the way down. Everything about him, even in his holiness and his justice, is also full of mercy that this is the way the character of God works, that he delights in steadfast love. And this is why he has done all that he does in our Lord Jesus, where these great promises given to the prophet Micah of God returning to dwell with his people, of God coming as the son of David, taking on flesh, coming to bring the forgiveness of sins, it all meets up. And that this God delights to save sinners. That he sends his son just for that purpose. And so friends, let him tread down your sins. Allow him to be the one who fights victoriously for you. Let him be the one who throws your sins into the sea and drowns them. That they no longer have a word of accusation against you. Let him throw them into the deep. Let his victory be your victory. Let him fight for you. Stop your striving 
Place your confidence, place your trust wholly and firmly in him. God has done this by sending his son into the world. Now it is left to us to experience his son's victory. And it is in this that we can have a Merry Christmas. Yes, Christmas is that warm time of year where we spend time with friends and family. We give gifts to one another and we have wonderful cultural celebrations. All of these are fantastic. But at the heart of it, it is the giving and hospitable God who turns and gives his son to us. He gives his son to us in order that his son would do for us what we cannot do. And it is the nature and character of God who says it is better to give than to receive. And that is why we surround ourselves this evening around his word, to give thanks to him, to rejoice in all that he has done. Because this is the gracious character of God. He delights in steadfast love. And so he's given us everything in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we do give thanks. You are the one who delights in steadfast love, and because you do so, you've sent your only Son into the world. You've done so to pardon our sins, to cast them into the heart of the sea. You've done so in order to tread down the power of our iniquities. And you have defeated them in him. Help us to rely upon him, to trust in him, to find his victory to be our victory. Grant us that confidence. Grant us that kind of faith. And may we know a Merry Christmas in him. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.